Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicles political podcast. I'm Joe Garfoli, the Chronicles senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we have a presidential candidate, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Now you're wondering, like, wait, how do you go from being the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, population 102,000 to leader of the free world? You got to check out Mayor Pete. Very impressive. Harvard, Rhodes Scholar, Navy combat veteran, mayor at a young age. He's a big thinker on issues, and he also would be our first gay president if elected. Next, talking with Mayor Pete on It's All Political. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, welcome to San Francisco. Thank you. And welcome to It's All Political. Thanks for having me. All right. So, your, your resume is like incredibly impressive, I have to say. It's like it's the gold standard in resumes. Harvard, Rhodes Scholar, Navy combat veteran in Afghanistan. Uh, you were the mayor of the uh, city of South Bend, Indiana. When you were elected mayor, when you were 30, was it? Yeah, 29. 29. Yeah. And, uh, okay, but let's just saw you over at Postmates. You did an event there. Yeah. And the, the question that you get right away is, you know, what the hell? I mean, how can you go from being a mayor of a, right. of a city that's a hundred population of one hundred two thousand, which is like the, the size of our suburb Antioch here, <laughs> to being the leader of the free world? What do, how do you answer the, the question that everybody has off the bat? Well, obviously, it's a fair question. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of how I talk about it is uh, by discussing my experience. Uh, yeah. So I've got more experience, more years of experience in government than the president. Uh, and <laughs> That's uh, a low bar, though. That is a low bar, but I've also got more uh, executive experience in government mm-hmm. than the vice president and more military experience than anybody to walk in that office since George H.W. Bush. Uh, look, I get that it's a non-traditional resume for this sort of thing. People expect you to uh, be marinated in Washington, maybe spend a, uh, many years in Congress. At the same time, we're talking about executive leadership. Mm-hmm. You could be a very senior member of Congress or even the Senate and have never in your life manage more than 100 people. Yeah. Uh, when you were a mayor, especially in a strong mayor system like we have in Indiana, there's no city manager. I get the call. And that call could be about anything from a economic development issue to a racially sensitive officer-involved shooting. You have to deal with those problems, solve them. And I think we would do well to see Washington incorporate more of the best of leadership from our cities and towns rather than the other way around. You know, my experience as a Midwestern millennial mayor uh, is relevant to what's going on around us right now for a party that has lost touch with the interior of the country uh, for uh, a a generation that I think has more at stake than anybody in the decisions that are being made right now. Maybe it makes a little bit of sense to put forward leadership from the generation that experienced the school shootings and and fought in the post 9-11 wars and uh, is going to be living with climate change for the rest of our lives. Do you have an interesting uh, construct around sort of the generational cost yeah. that your your generation, the millennial generation, uh, you're th- 37, as we said, um, has. I mean, you, you grew up in the era, probably the only candidate, uh, maybe Swalwell, if he run, jumps in, is that, that had active shooter drills. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was a up. junior in high school when Columbine happened. So, you know, very much feel like I'm part of the school shooting generation, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, we were born into this reality that's just different than any of those that have come before. It's shaped our politics. It's shaped our view of society. Uh, we've been here, especially if you're my age, you're just old enough to have known the world before the the, the smartphone and social yeah. media. You're a but, semi-digital uh, native. Yeah, you were yeah, very conversant right with on the, the cusp. AI issues. I mean, the funny thing is, when I went to college, you know, uh, widespread cell phone access and and social media were not a thing, and by the time I graduated, they were. Mm. 
Um, and so I witnessed that change and have seen how it's shaped opportunities and, and created problems um, for our generation. And, and when you see, you know, this embarrassing spectacle of tech founders being interviewed by senators who are supposed to be regulating this industry, but don't seem to even be able to understand it, uh, yeah. that's, that's a real problem. And it's that's painful. not just about age. I mean, you look at John Dingle, the guy just, he passed away, I think, in his 90s, and he mastered Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily all about age, but I do think that this generation needs to be putting forward more leadership. Um, as I said, you were just over at Postmates, which is a um, is it a digital firm here in San Francisco that's a, that's a delivery service, and, and they're about to go public. And one of the first questions you got was, was on artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I was talking to people afterwards, and they said one question they wanted to ask was, so you have been mayor of a city that went through a different type of turndown. Uh, the Studebaker plant there closed, 1963, yeah. um, and uh, basically hollowed out the town. Yeah. Um, if we were to have another recession, which is fair predicted, yeah. um, many people may be turning to the digital or to the um, to the gig economy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with those folks? That, you know, uh, w- that some of those companies, Postmates excluded, I think that they don't offer health benefits, they don't offer anything. Those people may have some income, but they wouldn't have. Uh, you know any other benefits? How do you? What do you? How are you thinking about sort of the future of work in well, that way? Frankly, this ups the stakes on the policy conversation, right? Uh, in many ways, that's a problem because the uh, the policy world has failed to keep up. Uh, more people turning to the gig economy uh, creates opportunities and it creates problems. One of the biggest problems is that uh, often the gig economy workers don't have the same kind of social and health benefits, um, which might be yet another reason why we should no longer be content to be pretty much the only developed country where people don't have universal access to health care. You know, we certainly need to ask uh, private sector players to step up and accept accountability for uh, for a lot of things. But to some extent, so does the public sector too. And if we're not prepared as a country to say that some of these, whether it's portable benefits or uh, access to health care, that these things aren't universal, um, then it's really malpractice uh, expecting, uh, you know, tech startups to be able to solve it for us. These are national problems that call for nationwide policy solutions. Well, speaking, so what would what would be some of the policy solutions? That you would well, for example, I mean, this is one of the reasons that Medicare for All is a good idea, uh, not only from a healthcare perspective, but from an economic perspective. It makes it easier for somebody to, uh, with a great idea, to leave their job and, and start a, a new business, uh, because leaving their job doesn't mean losing their healthcare. Um, it means that we have a chance of spending a, a lesser share of our GDP on bureaucracy than we do today in our healthcare market. Uh, and uh, now I'm under no illusion about what it would take to get there. Um, and, and I think anyone who embraces Medicare for all in this uh, race or conversation has a responsibility to talk about the pathway. How, what, um, what is the pathway? For? Well, the pathway that I favor, I would, I would call it Medicare for all who want it. In other words, you begin by taking a version of Medicare uh, and you make it available on the exchanges as a kind of public option uh, so that if people like me are right and it's efficient, then you'll see more people opting into that. And that's a very natural glide path to get to a single-payer environment. Look, the debate about healthcare, I think, has really gone off the rails because it's been mischaracterized. People aren't interested in Medicare for All um, because we're excited about socialism. We're interested in Medicare for All because it is more efficient. People say, who's going to pay for this? We already are. If you were uninsured, you're paying too much for health care. If you were insured, you're paying too much for health care. You're paying for it right now, one way or the other, in an incredibly inefficient system. This is about making sure the system is not just more just, but also more efficient. 
Um, as a millennial, uh, and Swalwa came in, he said he he still has close to a hundred thousand dollars in in college debt. Do you have? I mean, do you have any college debt? Uh, yeah, yeah. Chaston and I, you know, I had the benefit of a Rhodes scholarship, which picked yeah. up the tab for my studies abroad. But uh, you know, Chaston, my husband, made the decision to become a teacher, uh, and in many ways, the economy is punishing us for yeah. his decision to uh, choose this really noble uh, profession of education. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've got six figure student debt in our household wow. too. So what do you, where are you on free uh, college tuition? Where are you at? On so that? Uh, again, as somebody who's personally living with this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I consider it a very important uh, to take some immediate steps, first of which is to uh, make sure that you can refinance your student debt. Uh, another thing we've got to do is is increase the uh, the share to which this is subsidized, especially for uh, first-generation students or people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds who aren't going to have the same kind of access. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe uh, uh, are suspicious that the the value proposition of college is what uh, uh, you know well-intentioned policy people like me are telling them, uh, and we've got to confront college costs. How do you stand out from your from the eighty-seven other people running for president who are Democrats right now? If you how would you, you know, you're, 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 these are somewhat uh, in the ballpark, public option, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the range of things, uh, the, the, the debt refinancing on, on college. Um, what about other places? How do you stand out? So the traditional way of standing out is to deliver uh, some particular policy that's going to show who you are. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a lot from us on policy, but I actually think one of the mistakes Democrats have made is that we lead with the policy before we talk about our values. Republicans have been very smart about talking about the values idea, really winning the values debate in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and then you saw uh, Republican and Democratic presidents uh, and policymakers responding with policies that met uh, the overall temperature of the country, which was conservative until now. Now we're at a moment where I think uh, everything's been scrambled. Uh, we're really to, uh, at a moment that could lead to any number of uh, futures in terms of what the next era is going to look like. And it's one of the reasons I really emphasize uh big picture values, freedom, democracy, and security that, in my opinion, when you unpack them, lead in specifically progressive directions. Uh, But we've allowed, for example, freedom to be the province of people who can only envision freedom from government as though it were the only freedom that mattered and aren't talking about reproductive freedom or or, or the freedoms afforded by having universal health care or economic freedoms, uh, freedom to organize. Uh, You know, freedoms that, that, uh, frankly, if the progressive side doesn't defend them, nobody will. Um, So I want to talk about that. The reality is, I believe that most Democratic candidates will mostly converge on most issues. And so a lot of what's going to matter also is just the tone and the messenger, what kind of uh, vision and also what kind of style we're putting forward, especially at a moment when the president of the United States does not have an ideology. Just a style. Well, you and, and you come across as a very measured person. Just hearing mm-hmm. you speak and, and reading about you, um, uh, do you, but the president is. You know, he's going to go to low. We've seen him on a debate stage, um, and I was talking to some folks after the the postmate things, and they said, "Wow, I'm very impressed with uh, Mayor Pete." And I said, "But do you think he has a pair of brass knuckles in his po- back pocket? <laughs> what happens when Trump comes after you? Are you going to be able to?" To go to to stand toe to toe with him on that, or, or what, what's your philosophy on handling that? Look, I grew up in Indiana, and I'm gay. I'm comfortable dealing with bullies, <laughs> uh, and for that matter, I got a lot of practice dealing with rocket fire. I think I yeah. can handle uh, being called silly names. Yeah. Uh, I think what's more important is to realize that we've got to have a message that makes sense, that recognizes that this president's going to come and go, and so it can't be all about him. Uh, I know that everybody's got uh, you know various sort of fantasies about what uh, we might hope our candidate says on a debate stage, but it's not about serving up some zinger. 
Um, when you think about it that way, then it becomes almost as though he's the one we're trying to impress. I think it needs to be about looking past this president and thinking about all of the problems of which he is a symptom, uh, not just a cause. Because you don't just get a presidency like this. It doesn't just happen. It happens when the political system and the economic system are so broken that people in, for example, my part of the country, the industrial Midwest, uh, go to the polls, eyes wide open, and vote to burn the house down. And if we don't fix the conditions that led to that, which has to do with income inequality, it has to do with distortions in a democratic system where uh, money increasingly equals power, then we're never going to be able to overcome the, the situation that led us to this president emerging. And if it wasn't him, it'd be somebody else. You said uh, that the county that you live in was a, usually a fairly reliable Democratic yep. county, but it went it split. That's right. Year. What? Why do you think people voted for Trump? I think again, part of it was a vote to burn the house down because uh, people feel let down by the way things work. And and oddly, Democrats came to be perceived, especially in 2016, like we were the defenders of the system. Like we were the ones saying the system is fine. And that wasn't convincing because it isn't true. Uh, the reality is that uh, our political and economic systems contain distortions that are going to make it harder and harder for people to get ahead, especially in the mid Midwest, where people have turned against trade, uh, not out of some knee-jerk isolationism, but because we were promised that the gains, the overall gains would be so great that everybody would be made better off. And the first part happened. The gains were amazing. The rising tide rose. But a lot of the boats didn't budge. And a lot of those were our boats. And so people, uh, you know, decided that, that they needed to send a message. It's not because people are under some illusion that this president's a good guy. Um, it's that, uh, uh, People wanted to send a message to the establishment, and for better or for worse, the Democratic Party looked like the establishment. You were also talking about uh, reforming some major institutions. Mm -hmm. now, number one, I, you, you draw a line between, the, uh, or sort of a parallel between uh, your home state, Indiana, and California. Yeah. Uh, and re you want to reform or look at reforming the Electoral College because That's right. neither of our votes count, quote yeah. unquote. Talk a little bit about what you want to do with the Electoral College. Yeah, one thing, as somebody who lives in Indiana, one thing I have common with somebody who lives in California is in the vast majority of modern presidential elections, our voices haven't much mattered. Mm. Uh, and that's because the Electoral College uh, uh, takes over. And in fact, it has overruled the American people uh, twice in my short lifetime. Um, the only justification of it that remained convincing into this century was the idea that it might somehow prevent a very unfit person from reaching the Oval Office. Uh, I think many of us agree that it failed in that regard. <laughs> um, and it's just a deeply undemocratic thing. Look, democracy is in retreat around the world. And frankly, democracy is in retreat right here at home. Mm -hmm. um, you look at what's being done to make it harder for legitimate U.S. citizens to be able to vote. Uh, you look at uh, what's being done in terms of uh, uh, the way that money has taken over. You look at redistricting. It is harder and harder to really say that our democratic republic remains democratic in character. We've got to change that. And that, in my view, includes revisiting the Electoral College and coming up with something a little more well, democratic. And what about the Supreme Court? You're also talking about uh, the other day you, you said you would be, uh, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but you talked about court packing. But yeah. you, not necessarily. You said you'd be open to looking at it. Yeah, I words, think. Uh, for for uh, Explain what you mean by court packing. Sure. So some people have talked about the idea that given, you know, that we had a stolen Supreme Court, uh, basically the, the, the Congress manipulated the number of the Supreme Court to eight. Uh, could, could a future uh, Congress change it to 11? 
Um, and constitutionally, there are ways to do that. Look, the bigger question is not uh, whether this particular flavor of court packing that's making the rounds of the internet is the right solution. The, the fundamental question is, um, what does it take to stop the Supreme Court from continuing to evolve into a nakedly political institution? Uh, because as long as it is that, uh, s- confidence in the court will erode. And every time there's a vacancy, and by the way, the founders just didn't expect people to live that long. Um, so right. <laughs> so the, the, the way that vacancies arise is different than what you used to see. Um, but also every time there's a vacancy, there's this apocalyptic ideological fight. So there needs to be something done to change that political character. One way to do it would be to balance things out by having uh, more appointees added uh, in a way that's more reflective of where the American people actually are, which is decidedly to the left of the current court. Uh, another way you could do it is to create a, a kind of semi-nonpartisan structure, have 15 justices, five of whom are nonpartisan. Um, and, and there are some ways structurally that you could create that environment. You could even have a rotation. Uh, we, we can have a debate about exactly what the right structure should be, but let's have that debate. You're not, op- you're not married to any of these things. Or, no, but or I do think that it's be not crazy to, to talk about them. I yeah. guess that's a, we've not been allowed to talk about structural solutions, uh, even though a lot of the structures that we take for granted as though they were etched in stone are actually inheritance that's relatively recent. Look, 100 years ago, we didn't even elect senators by direct popular vote. Now we take it as a given. 100 years ago, we were still tweaking the number of people in the House of Representatives. Now that's taken as a given. Number 435 is not anywhere in the Constitution, as far as I know. Um, we, the reason we need to, to look at these things is not for the hell of it, but because our democracy is getting more and more distorted and less and less connected to the will of the American people. It's becoming less representative. It's becoming less fair. And if that continues, there will be a crisis of confidence in democracy, which is even more frightening than the consequences of the uh, crisis of confidence in capitalism that for my generation has already begun. You uh, you mentioned uh, your husband earlier. You you also stand out in this field as you may be the only person, um, the only Democratic or Republican candidate that met who met his husband on a dating app. Yeah, that's I mean, probably that's, true. That's a generational yeah. marker right there. And there's a great piece in your book which I which I do recommend. It's it's uh, it's it's very it's it's wonky and it's but it's it's personal too. Um, but you didn't come out until you're 33. Yeah, that's right. Right, right? Yeah. and um, you went on Hinge, the dating app. Mm-hmm. Um, but being a political political figure, you were wondering, uh, is it going to be tougher? Which which sort of side of your life <laughs> right. is it going to become tougher to come out yeah. at as the mayor of a town in Indiana, which was uh, Governor Pence was there and there. Right. And you're you're yeah. taking a step back and uh, a lot of uh, gay rights things. Yeah. Or, um, you know, in the hometown of Notre Dame University, you know, <laughs> preeminent Catholic university. Or your employer, the military, mm-hmm. uh, which which this is post uh, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, it wasn't when I signed up, but it yeah. was when I came out. Talk a little bit about you know that decision where you sat down with your parents, or not decision, but announcement to your parents when you came out, and, and all those things you were thinking about. Yeah, I mean, this is something I kind of realized somewhere in my twenties that I was going to have to do, but I dragged my feet on it. When I got into elected politics at the beginning of this decade, it was assumed to be the case that you could either be out or you could be in office in Indiana, but you could not be both. Uh, and at the time, it was also legally true uh, in the military. You could be an officer or you could be out. It couldn't be both. Um, and yet I realized, first of all, personally, that I wasn't getting any younger. I wanted to have a dating life. And <laughs> the only way to do that was to come out. Um, and secondly, I, being deployed to Afghanistan, which actually happened while I was in office, I had to take seven months off and, uh, and do that as a reservist, um, really just clarified a lot of things for me. Personally, I just began to realize that you only get to be one person. 
And uh, so when I came back, it was just a matter of time. It was still a bit complicated figuring out how to do it, especially in Indiana when Mike Pence was governor and, and it was just and I was in a reelection year. Um, but I had to do it. And so I did. I, I wrote a piece. I put it in the South Bend Tribune. I described the whole kind of experience in the book. Um, and you know, the community really put its arms around me. I got reelected with 80 percent of the vote. Um, a lot of people went out of their way to let me know that they were supportive. I'm not saying it was uniformly right, right. great. Um, but I will say you could tell the, the way that change was coming by the way that people responded and really just wanted me to be happy and, and you know, wanted me to keep filling in the potholes and picking up the trash and doing the job they'd elected me to do. Yeah. Now, we had, uh, as I said, we had uh, Eric Swalwell on here the other day, and he was um, another guy your age. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, like you, he if he runs for president, he's not going to seek re-election. He's not going to try and do both. You've mm-hmm. already said I guess, a couple of weeks ago that you're not going to seek re-election to a third term, correct? Yep. Swabble calls it burn the boats, you know, <laughs> to the Cortez, you know, you know you're, you're in, you're in. Yeah. Is that a generational thing or what's, what is your philosophy on that? Don't you feel like, oh man, if I, I'm taking a really long shot here, the longest of shots. You know, to me, it's not so much a question of political strategy. It's just that you should be going to serve where you belong. I mean, that's the thought process that led me into the military. It's a process that's led me to run for office several times. It's a process that's led me to decide not to run for office several times. It's, it's figuring out where you're needed. I love being mayor of my hometown. It's exciting. It's a season for mayors. Uh, but it's also not a job you can do forever. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of my coming in was we need to change, innovation, fresh blood. Uh, so it'd be a little weird if I were the one hanging on <laughs> at the end of, uh, <laughs> you know. you become what you um, ran yeah. against. So, you know, I, I put the better part of my 30s into uh, making our town a better place. I'm proud of the comeback story. We were described as one of America's 10 dying cities when I took office. Uh, and now we're growing again, economically and population-wise. I'm proud of it. But, uh, you know, it's it's also time to, to let somebody else take things to the next level. And yeah. meanwhile, you know, I never guessed that I would be having conversations like this at this age from, from this position this year. But this is a moment, I think, when my party's struggled to connect with the middle of the country, when uh, we're at a moment of generational change and three of the last four presidents are exactly the same age, uh, at a moment when uh, we really need to look to the problem solving that keeps our cities and towns running and bring that to Washington. It just might be the moment when a millennial Midwestern mayor has something to offer. And you talk about crossing that, um, that red-blue divide. You do that in your own uh, now extended family. Yeah. Uh, there's an, another sure. anic- nice anecdote in the book where you do that with your in-laws. Uh, now your folks are, are college professors at Notre mm-hmm. Dame, both of them. And... Um, and your fo- your in-laws are um, working class folks who live in northern Michigan, mm-hmm. Traverse City. And um, but they, they all get along. You've been like go fishing together and yeah. go on vacation. <laughs> Describe how the how, yeah, how I wasn't you sure see how that, that could work. happen through your own. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's an I odd mean, it's an odd couple. Yeah, I mean his parents they're a different generation actually. They're 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 quite a bit younger than my parents. They're uh, um, you know from a largely kind of rural setting in, in northern Michigan, uh, mom and pop uh, landscaping company. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, definitely probably over, over time voted a lot more conservatively than, than I have. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my dad was a kind of leftist intellectual. Um, they got on really well. And the reason they got on really well is, is that they love us. And, uh, you know, they, they both want their sons to be happy and we loved each other. And, and there's this kind of transitive effect that I think brought them together. That and fishing, I think, is a universal language that can bring everybody yeah, together. Um, so we, we, you know, we've, we've really gained from, we've, we've gained a family. Um, 
that's one of the things. I mean, somewhere along the line, people thought talking about family was a conservative thing. But um, my marriage, my gay marriage, has um, really helped me better appreciate the meaning and the importance of family. Um, and, and by the way, it's also through their stories that I've learned in new ways some of what's at stake in our current debates. You know, my mother-in-law is uh, relying on insurance that she buys through the exchanges under the Affordable Care Act to get chemotherapy that's life-saving for her. Um, so it's just provided one more set of reminders about you know how our American experiences differ, but also how we're brought together by our need for good decisions to be made by the people who have power over our lives, most of whom are in Washington. One more thing I want, before I let you go is um, um, this, this is, I find this fascinating. When you were a senior in high school in 2000, because, because you're such an overachiever, you're killing it for the rest of us, by yeah. the way. You're just, um, in high school, you won a, some scholarship money from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library for writing a, a profile in courage of someone. And you chose... Senator Bernie Sanders. Yeah, this Congressman Bernie Sanders Congre- at the time. He was, yes, he was pretty that's right. obscure. That's right. Congressman Bernie said, you said Sanders' positions on many difficult issues are commendable, but his real impact has been as a reaction to the cynical climate, which threatens the effectiveness of the democratic system. His energy, candor, conviction, and ability to bring people together stand against the current of opportunism, moral compromise, and partisanship, which runs rampant on the American political scene. Wow, that's, that's great. Uh, now, how are you going to be able to stand on a stage with uh, with Bernie Sanders and say, Bernie Sanders is full of crap? You know? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. Look, I, I still believe those things about him. I I, um, I think I was attracted to him when I was uh, 18 because I, it felt like there was not a lot of conviction in our politics. Yeah. And I still think it's really important. You could agree with him or not agree with him, but uh, it's important to uh, say what you're for and why. And we've gotten away from that. Uh, you know, I think, uh, look, I'll, I'll have a somewhat different message and be a very different messenger. Right. Um, but I admire, uh, you know, so many of the people who've gotten into this 2020 conversation. I don't view this as a process that has created opponents so much as it has competitors. Mm. Um, but I also think that, that uh, you know, everybody's bringing something very different to the table. And, and not only because I have the, you know, Episcopalian, Maltese, American, gay veteran mayor lane to myself, um, but <laughs> that, more broadly that is because, a niche. you know, that I, is just, a niche. I have a story to tell that's that's a little bit different than the others. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think it's a story that, that um, belongs in our politics. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Mayor Pete for being here. I'm not even going to try and say Buttigieg again. I have enough trouble saying Garofoli. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're a fanboy of Bernie Sanders or a competitor or both, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.